Hello, I'm Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to or watching Radio Maine. And today I have with me Evan O'Neill, who is a marathoner, fundraiser, and advocate for the blind and visually impaired community, and also a field team member with Johnji. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm psyched to be here. Yeah, well, I'm excited to have time to talk to you. I'm, you, you and I are graduates of Yarmouth High School, grew up in a wonderful community. In fact, I'm pretty sure that your your mom and I, we went to high school in the same general era. So, you know, I think there's lots of, there's lots of similarities. Um, I'm also, I'm so interested in, in the work that you've been doing recently as a result of something that you had absolutely no control over, which is a diagnosis that I think came into your life probably not entirely welcome I'm just gonna guess uh, and yet you've you, you've kind of turned you've turned it around and you're doing good things with it but but talk to me a little bit about why why you are doing the work you're doing now and how do we get to this place so well that's a great question so I um, I could do a little bit of like backstory on my diagnosis before going into sort of how it um, where it stands now and how it did, the role it plays in my life at this point but I was, so when I was 21 years old, senior in college, um, my senior spring, I was diagnosed with Stargardt disease, which if you're not familiar with Stargardt disease, it's a form of inherited macular degeneration, um, juvenile macular degeneration. So basically your eyes are made up of rods and cones, your rods are your peripheral vision, your cones are your central vision. And um, Stargardt disease attacks the macula, which is cones in your eyes. So your central vision starts to deteriorate over time. And currently there's no cure or treatment for um, the condition. So, you know, where I am, especially in Boston, near MIT and Harvard, um, there's multiple clinical trials and lots of going, lots of research going into a cure, but currently no cure or treatment. So Long story short, I'm losing my eyesight over time um, with no cure, like I said. So senior spring of St. Lawrence, I was diagnosed and, um, you know, it was, came as a shock. I had struggled with my eyesight my entire life. And I remember bits and pieces of not being able to see and wondering why, A, my glasses weren't working or B, you know, my contacts weren't working and what was happening and if I needed a stronger prescription. Um, so being diagnosed with Stargardt disease made a lot of sense, but also no sense at the same time because I had never heard anything like this. I didn't know diseases like this even existed, um, let alone that there'd be something that I could be, that could be this life altering and not have a, you know, um, remedy or a way to, to fix it. So immediately after being diagnosed, I sort of fell into a really dark place. I, my academics plummeted exponentially uh, and I, I didn't know how to disclose the information to others, peers, family members, you know, other residents of Yarmouth. And so the beginning of it was definitely dark and I was felt super alone in it. And also it's very rare. So I should also say that it, you know, it affects one in 10,000 people 
and finding my, I didn't find a community around it right away. I always describe it as sort of jumping off a cliff. So when I was diagnosed, you know, it was just my mom and I in the doctor's office and they told us, and I was like, what? Like, what do you mean I'm going blind? What do you mean there's no care? Like, this is, I'm 21 years old. I'm in college. This is the last thing I would ever expect. So um, I went home, COVID um, hit in March, 2020, as we all know, I went home from school and it ended up sort of being a blessing in disguise for me because I think being in the environment, the college environment at that time was just not suitable for what was happening. Um, with me, academics-wise, socially, everything. So I went home and trying to find, I was trying to find something that would make me feel stronger, again, make me feel more in control, make me feel grounded in myself and my body, because I felt super out of control. And I had always been somewhat of an athlete. You know, I played sports and that was my outlet growing up. But I never was a runner, never dreamed of running more than two miles. It, it was n- never in my, you know, I, I, I actually at one point I remember saying like people who run marathons are crazy and I would never do something like that. It's such a waste of time and it's not for me. <laughs> so, um, but all that's to say, I went home, I started to run a little bit, just like a two mile loop around my house. And also you can stop me at any point if I'm going off on a tangent because I'm sort of telling the full story, but I can tell specific parts and and whatever works best. No, you're doing great. Please do continue doing exactly what you're doing. (laughs) Okay. That's great. So I went home. I would do this little two mile loop. I called it like my mental health loop because obviously COVID was a little bit crazy. People, you know, we weren't seeing anyone. So I would go on this little mental health loop and I was also coping with the fact that I had been just diagnosed with Stargardt disease at this point. Um, and on one of the days I was doing a two mile loop, my neighbor who at the time was furloughed from her job, she was home from New York city, caught me, you know, at the tail end of my run. It's like, Oh, I'm going to do four miles. Do you want to do two more with me? And I was like, you're absolutely crazy. I would never do four miles. Um, but she was like, why don't you try? So, and at that point, you know, we were close. My neighbor and I were close. Our moms were close, but we weren't, nearly as close as we are now. And she had me go on the four mile run. We finished up. She said, all right, let's try and do same time tomorrow. Like, cause you know, the run felt great. I was like, okay, I guess I could do four miles. And when you're talking with someone, when you have that partner with you, it goes by faster as a lot of us know. And so the next day we ran four mile loop. And again, I was at finishing up school, but, you know, I had one online class a day. So there's plenty of time to add in this running routine with Madison. Her name is Madison Hines. She's in Abby's grade. I should say that. Um, and we continued to run every day and started to form a really unique relationship in that, you know, she was going through her own things, having been furloughed and had other things going on in her life. And I had this huge diagnosis and I was able to share with her things that, you know, I might not share with my sisters or my parents because it's too hard. And I think when you're moving your body in that way and you're having this physical, emotional, mental connection with someone, it's so unique in that you're able to 
open up and express in a way that I think I, I wouldn't be if we didn't share that love of running and like willingness to move our body and be outside and, and want to connect in that way. So, you know, she heard my whole, my story. She understood kind of where I was with my diagnosis, what level of accepting it I was and how fearful I was of the future. And eventually our mileage increased. We were doing six, seven miles a day. And she was like, Evan, why don't we do a half marathon? And at this point it was, um, you know, most half marathons and full marathons in the United States and around the world had been postponed or canceled. And she suggested we do our own DIY half marathon around Yarmouth, Maine and make it a fundraiser and have it be my way of telling my Maine community, my St. Lawrence crew, and everyone in between that I had been diagnosed with this very rare kind of crazy thing that it's really hard to explain to people. And so I agreed. And, you know, I was very fearful at first because the half marathon was like crazy, but I knew that I wanted to tie my diagnosis to something positive. And this, and running had been something really positive for me, made, made me feel strong again, made me feel comfortable in my skin. I, I felt like I had some sense of control back that I had lost through, through my diagnosis. So I had done a little bit of research, what, you know, foundations or and organizations are doing um, for degenerative rental conditions. And I was in contact with a few folks over at the Foundation Fighting Blindness. And I really liked what they were doing. I really liked, you know, how they explained exactly where my money would go, how much would go to research, how much would go to education. And I chose a Foundation Fighting Blindness to fundraise for. And Madison and I ran our half marathon July 3rd, 2020. And we raised $20,000 and ran around Yarmouth. And it was the best, still to this day, I think, one of the absolute best days of my life. I did not know what to expect telling people that I was diagnosed with this. You know, it's, you can, there can be some worry around how people will react and how they will see you and how they'll see you differently from how they previously saw you. And that can be said for so many things, but I just knew, especially as being a young 20, 21 year old girl at the time, woman at the time, I, I just didn't know what to expect. And it was really positive, completely altered everything for me. And from that point on, I was like, this is absolutely a silver lining. This happened for a reason. And then it has to become something bigger than, than, than me. And that was sort of the beginning of it all. I don't know if that was a very long-winded way about answering your short question, but that's sort of like how it all began. Well, that's it's so interesting that you're talking about the importance of having that one person who was cared, that you felt like you could, I'm sure everybody else cared. I'm sure your mom cared and your family cared, but for you, you actually needed somebody who was just, just kind of adjacent to all the people you knew who cared. This person, Madison, who, yeah, my daughter, Abby, she, so I have three kids for people who um, know I live in Yarmouth, my oldest, uh, Campbell, and then Abby is the middle child, and then Sophie is the youngest, who also went to St. Lawrence. But similar, Abby, also uh, also an athlete, and friends with Madison. And Madison, wonderful human being, 
Um, but I love the fact that what you're describing isn't like, this was my best friend and we went out and ran because we were best friends. You're like, oh, this is a person. And we actually became really close friends and having that connection, you know, kind of that validation, like, all right, like I'm, I'm still existing in the world in a way that makes sense to other people. So what can I do with not only my relationship with this person, but the running piece? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a lot of really kind of fortuitous stars aligning, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think I would have, I mean, I know I wouldn't have done nearly half of what I have accomplished without Madison. So shout out to Madison. <laughs> exactly. She probably doesn't but, know yeah. that we're telling her story right now, but that's, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping she'll doesn't. be all right with it. But um, yes, no, she definitely will. She definitely will. I actually just saw her last weekend. We ran a marathon together. So she, she will be psyched this is happening. Well, and, and I have to say that as, as a, somebody who also runs marathons and, you know, I sometimes run two marathons if I'm really motivated every year, sometimes just one this year is going to be a one marathon. It is a completely, I don't want to use the word crazy because that's kind of a pejorative term, I guess these days, but it's, it's not completely normal. I mean, people who run marathons, <laughs> you, you actually, you put a lot of time into training in Maine or in Boston, you're getting up and it's, or you're going out and it's probably gonna be dark part of the time, depending upon what time of year you run your marathon. Sometimes it's cold. It's, it's also just really long. I mean, it's hours and hours of training every single week. So for you to say, oh, I'm going to turn this thing that has impacted my life into, I'm going to do something that's actually quite a bit of work. I just I kind of, I love it because I am somebody who relates to it, but not everybody would. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And like I said, I never dreamed of like really running a marathon or doing anything remotely close to that. So it's, it's interesting, but again, back to that sense of control, the diagnosis made me feel, I mean, I have no control over it. It's, it's affecting me. I have no control over how fast it's declining. And so getting up every morning and running and having that consistent schedule, I think brought some sort of um, sense of stability back into my life and made me feel really strong and in control and honestly like happy which I think I was really sad for a while well and I think that the, it's important not to gloss over the fact that it you know at 21 I mean I think everybody anticipates that as life goes on that something will happen to their health but most people when they're 21 that's that's not an assumption that they make and to have something that really impacts your your day-to-day -day living and to have so much uncertainty around it, I mean, that's a lot to handle. Yeah, definitely. And just like I said, you know, I had no idea that this even existed, that this could even be a possibility for me. I, I remember saying to my mom in the doctor's office, like, oh, maybe it's just macular degeneration, which I had no idea what that even meant. And my mom was like, well, I hope not, honey. Like, but um, it's just interesting. Like you said, you just never know, but it's, it's not what you expect. So it's how you react to it that matters most, I think. So on a day-to-day -day basis, I mean, you obviously went in because your eyes weren't functioning in the way that they had before. Now you have a diagnosis and you're still fully functioning in the world. 
uh, on a day-to-day basis, how does this impact your ability to do the job that you do and, and to go out running? And, and what does this mean for you? What kind of accommodations do you have to accept? That's a great question. I honestly sometimes feel like I learn something new about it every day and learn something new about what I need and what would work best for me every day you know, accommodations-wise, accessibility-wise, et cetera. When I was first diagnosed, I was pushing all of that off. You know, I I didn't even want to think about it. I didn't want to Google it. I didn't want to know anything about it. I remember my teachers, you know, sort of discussing the option of having online books with me so that I could zoom in. And I just, I hated it. I didn't want to deal with any of it. And now I have... I mean, it's taken four years, but I've been able to embrace that it's an asset to the workplace. And um, so in that regard, like I have accessibility tools on my computer. I would say the four hardest things for me to see in no particular order, or maybe we can do in order, people's faces are incredibly hard. So, so Stargardt disease, like I said, affects your central vision. So the details in the center of your vision are completely gone. And so the details of people's faces, recognizing who people are, um, is incredibly hard. It's probably the hardest thing. And then computers, phones, books, um, street signs. So I'll go into that further because of running, um, TVs, you know, um, even like the buttons on my oven, my microwave, our fridge, I have all accommodations with that, with, for that. So I, um, those are all really difficult things to see. And a lot of the times I'm like, oh, I could see that last year and I can't see it this year. And that's when I kind of remember that, it, or not remember, but I'm reminded that it's progressing. And so with all of these things, I've learned to adapt just like so many of us do with things that are hard in our life or things that have happened to us without our, our control. And, you know, whether that's, putting these dots on my microwave or oven that are red for stop, green for start, you know, like purple for popcorn, whatever that means. I, I do that. I have accessibility tools on my computer. I have special stickers on my computer so I can see the buttons. I usually tend to run with a bunny, but if I'm running alone, I just go on a route that I know is safe. I stay on the sidewalks. Um, I use my other senses. So if I'm at a stoplight, I know I won't be able to see, or a um, crosswalk, I know I won't be able to see when it turns from stop to go. And so I rely on my hearing because normally those crosswalks are supposed to say like walk sign is on. Um, And if not, I wait for someone else to come and see when they go. And I base it off that. So every day I'm sort of still learning. And I know that's going to continue for the whole rest of my life. um, How to best be myself in the world with this, with this condition. Um, and yeah, I think honestly, that's sometimes what keeps like it interesting. I mean, like imagine dating at 25 with being visually impaired and, and legally blind. I don't know what these men look like. Like, I don't know what, how I'm going to find them at the restaurant or the bar. I, especially like dim lighting, like it's so interesting and not to mention not only that, but it's also really good gauge of if this person's right for me. And so it's just, the whole thing is super interesting. Um, 
And yeah, I guess that's how I would answer that question. But I just make sure that, you know, people know, like, for example, I just got a little side hustle job at a workout studio. And the first thing I think of is how am I going to check people in? How am I going to be able to see the iPad? I'm definitely not going to be able to see people's names. But in those moments, I just have to bring myself back down to equilibrium. Like, I'll disclose that I have a disability. We'll find accommodations. Like, that's why Zoom exists. That's why Apple and Dell and Mac or whatever, they all have, you know, accessibility tools on the computer. It's because people like me exist in this world and they still are going to live full, rich, beautiful lives regardless of that because there are ways to do so. So another long-winded answer to your short question, but. No, I think this is this is actually really important. And I think the fullness of your responses is so thoughtful. And I really appreciate this um, because I'm not sure that, I think most of us, we just have the perspective of where we're coming from. So we don't think to ourselves, well, what would it be like if I actually couldn't see somebody and I was dating, you know, and I couldn't use visual cues because there's a lot of communication that does occur visually, just for example. So it's, it goes beyond just, you know, what does somebody look like and will I like them because they visually appeal to me? It is also, you know, when they are saying something with their voice, what are they saying with their face? And if you're saying that you have a hard time seeing faces, I mean, you really are also learning how to interpret communication in a different way. And so for people like me to understand that is really helpful because um, maybe I think about the way that you and I might communicate differently. You know, if I, if I were having a regular long-term friendship with you, or maybe not, maybe I think about the way I communicate with anybody because you don't really know who's out in the world who may need different uh, kind of communication tactics. So trying to be more universal in the way that we think about interacting with one another, I think is really important. I absolutely agree. And it's, it's interesting you say that because I, it's technically, you know, you wouldn't look at me and know that I have Stargardt disease. You wouldn't, you wouldn't look at me and know that I am losing my eyesight or that I'm legally blind. So navigating that piece of it too, this invisible illness or this invisible disabilities sort of aspect is super interesting because I think sometimes even my friends like forget or, or, you know, tend to like, if they're making a facial expression to me across the room, there's no chance I'm going to know what it is. And they'll be like, Evan, like, and I'm like, I, I can't see you. <laughs> and they're like, Oh, right. Like, I'm sorry. Blah, blah, blah. And so it's funny because it's not like I have to remind people, but sometimes I have to be like, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Like, I need you to read the menu to me. I need you to tell me when the crosswalk is changing. If it doesn't speak to me, I need you to, you know, do things that um, I wouldn't have ever thought I would have to do. So it's just, it's, it's interesting. Um, but again, like I said, it's all a learning curve. And at the end of the day, sometimes I truly think like there are, there are good days and bad days, obviously. But at the end of the day, sometimes it, it makes life like even just more interesting and more funny and entertaining because my friends and I can laugh about it together and we can cry about it together and my family as well. I'm glad that you have a sense of humor about it. And I think that you know, <laughs> it seems like you're, Thanks. you're navigating it in a way that is really appropriate 
to you and in your situation. And also I'm glad that you're, you say that you can cry about it together because, you know, I think about the fact that, you know, you're my, my daughter's age, for example. And I mean, as a mom and knowing your mom and knowing, you know, your family, like I, I know that that's a processing that occurs for kind of everybody, right? So if you say, you know, I, Evan, can cry with the people that I'm with, my my family, my friends, I mean, that's a really supportive thing that you're all offering one another is this ability to say, yeah, this actually does impact all of us and it doesn't necessarily always feel great. But yeah, it's, yeah. It's a, I don't know, it's an interesting place of vulnerability that you end up finding yourself in, I would imagine. Absolutely. And and when I was first diagnosed, like I said, it was like jumping off a cliff. I had no idea what this meant for me or my family or my future, anything like that. And I remember feeling super isolated and really alone. And my mom and I on the drive home and in, you know, the weeks, months, years now after my diagnosis, we always said, to every doctor that I've met with, if any other family is going through this, please send them our way. Or you have anyone that, that you want to, that, that needs someone to talk to, or, you know, whether it's Stargardt disease or there's other retinal conditions, the retinitis pigmentosa, which is like when you lose your peripheral vision and you keep some of your central. So anything remotely close to that, I, I, wanted to be someone that someone else could talk to. And that's where this whole, that's what the entire running thing has sort of spiraled into is not only attaching something positive to my condition, like what running has done for me, but also being able to be vulnerable, like you said, on social media and be vulnerable with my friends and family and be vulnerable in situations like this, like on a talk, speaking with you on this podcast, because when I was first diagnosed, that, that girl would never have done any of this. She wouldn't dream of telling people that she's dealing with this a, because she probably wouldn't want attend the limelight, but also B because it was some, it was somewhat like it was terrifying and embarrassing and weird. And I, and I didn't know, that it could be anything other than those things until I was vulnerable. I remember like first posting on social media about it. I was like, I don't know what people are going to think of me after this. And I have to continue Lisa telling myself that like, well, it doesn't matter because the whole point of this is that like others can see that I'm struggling with this too, but I can still, you can still live a full, rich, like I said, beautiful life regardless of this. You can still have sorry there's a car beeping outside I don't know if you can hear that um you can still have an amazing experience in life with this and the messages from parents and and young adults my age and younger people of all different ages and backgrounds that message me that you know, ask, either asking questions about Stargardt disease or asking, you know, who my doctors are, what my doctors are saying, asking about how our family has dealt with X, Y, and Z, asking, you know, I have these special TV glasses that like have this, they're so horrendous looking, but they're hilarious. And they have this thing on the side and you can 
alter how close the TV is to your eyes. It's sort of like a giant magnifying glass. Um, but the amount of people that have messaged me about those asking where I got them that have either Stargard disease or something similar, something in that same vein matters to me so much more than, than anything else. And that never would have come if I wasn't open with this or vulnerable with this online. I think that's why I continue to, to, to run. That's why I continue to openly discuss my blindness. And that's why I'm not afraid anymore to sort of, I guess, be myself in that way. But it's just, it's the vulnerability piece I think is so important. And it's always been important to me, but this is just a completely different version of it, I think. When I think about what you, in being vulnerable, but also in sharing your experience, I think about what benefit um, other people who have done something similar have brought to the type of accommodations and, you know, creating of the glasses. I mean, if people aren't willing to come forward and say, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not experiencing life the way that everybody else is. And I, I need a little assistance, you know, then we don't build glasses and we don't have zoom and Apple and Google working on adaptability measures. I mean, I, I think it'd be great if we got to a place where universal design meant that everybody has access to what they need online and otherwise, but the way that that happens is by people coming forward like you and others who have done so beforehand and say, all right, so let me tell you a few things that I, I'm really challenged by and, and how could you help me with this? So we almost, we kind of really need people like you to do that. <laughs> yes, no, I agree. Absolutely. And yeah, it's, I think, I would rather go through life being vulnerable and open like that. And whether it's like helping one person feel more comfortable in their own skin or a bunch of people, I would rather go through life like that than any other way. And I know that there are people that have Stargard disease that don't want anyone to know, and it's not a part of their life that they want to share. And that's completely respectable too. I think whatever you want to do with your journey is is okay and 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 fine and it's it's just one of those things I think for me that like I know when I was first diagnosed my mom said this will become a superpower and I I knew I had to harness that in some way whatever it is and even if it's like I mean I'm I don't, you know, I'm, I have no like following. I, I just, I like to, I, I'm so glad that it has become a superpower for me in that way. And sort of going off on a tangent now, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. Well, and I like, and I want to reiterate something you just said, which is that there is no expectation. I think for me, to you, I don't expect you to be vulnerable. I would never expect anybody with Stargardt's disease or any sort of other issues that they want to um, process and, and experience in their own way. I would never want them to do anything that's outside of their comfort zone. Because I think that th the fact that you're choosing to show up and be vulnerable and be courageous, um, I mean, that requires a certain amount of energy and it requires a decision that you've made about your own life. 
and other people who have other issues, I mean, that's, that's completely within the realm of their own decision-making and back to their own control about their own lives. So I, th I think you just, you are on a spectrum. I'm grateful that you've chosen this path, but equally I'm, I value the people who have made their own decisions to do it a different way because we all get to decide what to do with our bodies, at least. Exactly. At least that's what I, exactly. I choose to believe in my political <laughs> beliefs. <laughs> so I agree. I agree completely. Definitely. So one thing I'm interested in, this is field team member for Janji, because I know Janji is a, is a running organization, company. Um, what has that meant for you? So after I ran the half marathon, I really, I loved the way I felt and I knew I wanted to do a full, I mean, directly after, probably not, but a few months after I decided, I think I would like to do a full. So the following year, I did my first marathon, which was the main marathon in, um, I don't know if you've done that one, but you know, yes. it's like in Portland. Yeah. yeah. And it's a great, it's really beautiful. It's, I did it with Madison. And so that had the first one under my belt and it went really well and I loved it. So I started thinking about the next one, what that might look like. And I, I moved to, um, I ended up moving to Boston that following summer and I, I live in Boston now and work in Boston and if you know Boston, then you know the Boston Marathon. And if you know the Boston Marathon, you know it's one of the most special, unique, oldest, most exciting marathons in the world. And I decided, I've been three years since I did my half marathon at this point, and three years since I did a full round of fundraising. And I decided, okay, I'm going to apply for the Boston Marathon through mass nine year because I should also not continue without mentioning that I was, a, I was diagnosed at main eye center with cone dystrophy, which means that technically it's like an umbrella term for different types of retinal conditions you have that have to do with your cones, your central vision, but main eye center doesn't have these machines called electroretinograms that look directly at your retina and be able to tell if you have Stargardt disease. And so after being diagnosed, I, um, at Maine Eye Center with cone dystrophy, my family and I had traveled down to Massachusetts Eye and Ear a couple months later, and it was there that I was officially diagnosed with Stargardt disease. And my experience at Massachusetts Eye and Ear was amazing. I walked in there with my family, again, a terrified 21-year-old woman, and they sat me down. It was my, my doctor, Dr. Huckfeld, Dr. Rachel Huckfeld, and a resident at the time. And they said, listen, we looked at your charts. We know you have Stargardt disease. We have race car drivers that have Stargardt disease. We have artists that have Stargardt disease. We have educators. We have entrepreneurs. This is not going to ruin your life. This is not going to make you not become what you want to become. And they, the bedside manner was just, it was a world of difference. And it, it, my family and I, you know, left that experience with Dr. Huckfeld feeling much more positive about my future. And, and, you know, she, she said to me, you're in my hands now, and I'm following the most promising clinical trials in the nation. And if there's a clinical trial that you're eligible for, I will tell you. And so I felt just better. I felt, I felt safer. And so 
All that's to say is that I knew I wanted to fundraise for Dr. Huckfeld when it came to the Boston Marathon, if I was going to be running with Mass Pioneer. And so that's what happened. It was really exciting. I applied. Um, I was I was lucky and I'm lucky enough to be accepted onto this team of runners. And they asked what area um, I would like to fundraise for and what department. And Dr. Huckbelt has a discretionary fund, which basically means that she can use that money for whatever area of research she thinks is, is most important. And so I fundraised for her um, for her discretionary fund in the winter of 2022 into the spring of 2023. And I ran the Boston Marathon in the spring of 2023. And before running it, I, so again, the story is sort of all over the place sometimes, but after I was diagnosed with Stargardt disease, I moved to Montana sort of on a whim um, in the fall of my, of 2020. So about four months after being diagnosed. And I knew I wanted to get away from the Northeast. I knew I wanted to get away from everything that sort of like happened that spring. And I, I also wanted a chance to see the mountains and ski and be out there before maybe I wouldn't be able to do that. So I moved to Montana and another Yarmouth resident, Sam Ruda, messaged me when I moved out there because he went to school in Bozeman. And he said, you know, I saw your story because this was after I had done the half marathon. And I think it would make a really cool film. And Sam had just quit his job at Harley Davidson or left his job at Harley Davidson and went full-time freelance videography and photography. So he sent me a little message. You know, I saw your story. I think this would make a really cool film. I would love to chat more about it. So it's super early stages. And I was like, whoa, someone thinks this is interesting. Like, this is crazy. And I went over and said hi to Sam. And Sam and I, you know, like saw, we were, we were acquaintances in high school, but never close. And I told Sam the whole story. And he said, okay, like, let's brainstorm. Let's come up with some ideas. So Sam technically started filming my journey in 2020. Um, Sam's family still lives in Maine. So he came home from Maine that following summer, filmed me in Maine. So it was like 2020 through 2022, he was filming at different points in Montana and Maine. And so he had a ton of footage. So I called him and we weren't really sure at that point what he was doing or what we were, what the story was going to be or become. He just knew he wanted to get film of me running and um, eventually tell the story. However, um, we decided that it should be told. And so when I got accepted to the Boston Marathon, I called Sam and said, I, I just got accepted to the Boston Marathon. I think that it would be really cool to get a brand involved. And at first I was like, you know, Asics or Hoka or something big. And Sam was like, I think you should take a step back. What about John G? Have you ever heard of John G? And I had never heard of them at that point. And he said, why don't you take a look at their website? I do freelance for them. And I know the um, content marketing director and she's great. And I think that you would really resonate with their mission and their values. And so I took a look at their website and I absolutely resonated. Sam was 100%, 100% right. They have this group of athletes called the field team and or the field team athletes, field team group. And it's a group of individuals from all over the world. You have people in Hawaii, someone I think is in Singapore, like it's all over the world. And they um, are individuals who 
have faced or are facing adversity in some way and are wanting to do something about it and wanting to be active and out in the world, regardless of, um, you know, what's, what's happening in their life and, and all very positive, unique, amazing individuals. And I was like, Sam, first of all, I'm honored that you think I could even be a part of a group of people like this because this is insane. And I'm like, you know, all these people had huge followings. And I'm like, I have like, you know, my main crew and my, my like friends in Boston that know that this is, that I'm like, you know, even exist. And so Sam was like, well, let me get in contact with Kyla, who is their content marketing director. And basically it all sort of unfolded. I met with Kyla, the headquarters, John G headquarters is actually in Somerville, Mass. So um, like right outside Boston and or right outside the heart of the city. And so Kyla had come up for a um, e-commerce shoot and I met with her, told her my story and what I, you know, that I just got accepted to Boston and I would love to represent John G. And it just, it, it all fell into place and it was great. And I joined their field team in that, that spring. So this past spring. Um, and since then have been, I ran the Boston Marathon and wore all John G. Their clothes are great. I have to plug. Like they have great, great, um, high quality running clothes, hiking clothes, um, you know, lounge, whatever you're interested in doing. And it's been an amazing experience. I've been able to connect with other people who, you know, although they might not have like a retinal condition or, um, be experiencing exactly what I'm experiencing. They're all going through and, and, um, you know, battling their own unique thing. And we've been able to connect on that level um, and in those kind of shared experiences. And it's been amazing. And I have no plans to not be involved with John G in the near future. Well, and I, I give you a lot of credit for running Boston. I wouldn't say that it's, I've run it twice and I wouldn't say it's the easiest marathon. If you want an easy marathon, maybe <laughs> yeah, try no something flatter, but it's, it is a great marathon. Mm -hmm. And certainly if somebody from New England and, and it's just iconic. So the fact that you were fundraising yeah. for this really important cause, and also you are running this, this marathon that, you know, all runners aspire to be in. So it just, it sounds like it, if you've kind of continued on this really interesting journey that it sounds like five years ago, you wouldn't necessarily have thought that you would have found yourself doing. You wouldn't have been probably running no. the Boston Marathon, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely not. And it's so interesting because sometimes I think of my life in two and I think of my Evan O'Neill pre-diagnosis and Evan O'Neill post. And it's really interesting. I've, I've My perspective has just completely shifted. And I, you know, you when you human beings go through a lot and there's a lot, like you said, there's a lot of instances that happen in life where you're hit with something really hard or you have to deal with grief in some way or hardship that you do not expect. And I think a lot of people change when that happens or their outlook on life changes or some aspect of who they are is altered. And so it's funny because I sort of look at myself in like two nowadays and I love the Evan I was before my diagnosis and I absolutely love the Evan I was after, but they are different. You know, I 
think I have a lot more empathy and I look at individuals differently, I think, when I meet them and my my friendships have changed just the way that I understand individuals, I think has changed too. Because there's so, everything just goes so much deeper than you even ever could realize. I don't really know how I got off on that, but. <laughs> well, it's a great way to, to end our conversation because um, I often have had the same reflections and that, you know, there's, you can live in the world in a surface way, um, but there's a lot that goes on kind of under the waters. And if you're, if you're either forced to or just kind of inclined to go a little deeper, then it does just change absolutely the perspective that you have on your entire existence. So I, I think what you're absolutely what you're talking about seems really appropriate as we as we wrap up our conversation today. And I can see the sun starting to come in on your shoulder. So it's it's like I know. it's like telling you like it's like hello, get back out <laughs> into the day and enjoy the light. Um, I've been speaking with Evan O'Neill. She is a marathoner, fundraiser, and advocate for the blind and visually impaired. She's also a community team member for Janji, and she is a fellow Yarmouth High School graduate. So uh, go Clippers. And I, yeah, go Clippers. I, go Clippers. And I, I really do appreciate your taking the time to have this conversation with me and uh, to let everybody else that listens to Radio Maine um, have an insight into your world. So thank you. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for having me. It's been an honor being on the podcast and an amazing opportunity getting to tell pieces of my story and, and just chat with you this morning. So thank you so much. I'm Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you've been listening to or watching Radio Maine today with Evan O'Neill. Thank you for joining us. Mm-hmm.